John chapter 1, verse 43 to 46. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophet also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nancy Abernathy is a professor teaching first-year med students, and one particular semester, her husband, just in his 50s, tragically and very suddenly died of a heart attack cross-country skiing just uh, outside of their home. And through the grief, she managed to make it through that semester, continuing on her teaching, and then as it drew to a close, she shared one day with her class near the end of the semester that she was actually really dreading the return of fall the next year and students coming back from summer break. Because Dr. Abernathy begins every semester the same way. She gets a new group of students and she works her way through each and every one of those students sharing a family photo so that they get to know one another over the course of the unfolding year. And she always goes first. And she feared that she wasn't going to be able to share a photo of her now very suddenly late husband without weeping in front of a group of who are at that point relative strangers. And so summer came and went, and then the next semester rolls around, and Dr. Abernathy shows up on the first day of school clutching a photo of her husband in her hand with knots in her stomach, and she walks into the classroom, and it's packed. Seems too full. And she came to realize that all of her students from the previous year had conspired over the course of the summer to show up there together, and they were intermingled with her new students. They wanted to be there to support her on that day because they had heard her, they had truly seen her when she shared the previous spring. And that, in a picture, is the big idea for today. So community, this is one teaching series in three parts. Part one was uh, the revolution of the new family of Jesus that was introduced biblically when Jesus asked the question, who is my mother and who are my brothers? We then moved into part two, looking at the various relationships that make up the new family of Jesus, known as the church. And today we begin part three, practices for deep roots. So if we want the fruit of community, we've got to be those who live in a transient world of transactional relationships deeply rooted. How do we do that? How do we retrain habits in a world of radical individualism to be deeply communal? Well, we need at least these three core practices. Next week, we're going to talk about reconciliation and conflict interpersonally. The following week, we'll conclude the teaching series talking about reconciliation across a, a more of a grand scale, socially and culturally across ethnic lines and class lines. But up for today is wonder. The practice of learning to see one another through the eyes of Christ. And we'll look at this theme of wonder through three major parts. Seeing the image of God in creation, seeing the image of God in recreation, and then opening the eyes of the blind. But first, look back with me at our teaching text, John chapter 1. I'm going to reread from verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. 
Now this question for Nathaniel, it's born from the drone of familiarity. Philip's talking about something good, something so good that Nathaniel never imagined that God would make himself known this decisively and this intimately in such a familiar place. It's like you coming to me saying, oh, Tyler, do you have plans for this year's spring break? And me saying, oh, yeah, we've been talking, uh, we've been saving up, scheming and dreaming. I'm taking the family to Salem. (laughs) Salem? Can anything good come from Salem? Because spring break is something good. It's something so impossibly good that it must be only accessible in places that are far away, right? Uh, spring break something we imagine could take place in Hawaii or Mexico or Southern California, but not Oregon. Philip's saying something like, I've found it. i found the one that you've been looking for and the life that you've been aiming toward, hoping for, rumored about for so long, you've probably stopped anticipating it. Where can I find it? In the church small group, in Jane's living room you've been attending for the last three years. Jane's living room. Can anything that impossibly good come in such a familiar and close place as Jane's living room? So to those blinded by familiarity, to people like Nathaniel, people like us, Philip offers this very simple and straightforward invitation. Come and see. See is the ancient Greek horao, which means see in the most literal sense, but it can also be translated pay attention to. And it's that second definition that I think is most fitting here. And this word horao is one that will show up 29 times throughout the Gospel of John. It is a theme introduced on page one, but a theme that John keeps weaving through the narrative as it goes forward from here. And he tells the story of Jesus. And John stands out among the Gospel writers because he's more cinematic screenwriter than he is investigative journalist. He wrote later and he didn't have to rely on eyewitness and testimony accounts because he himself was an eyewitness. In fact, he was one of three front row eyewitnesses to the unfolding story of Jesus. And as a result, he takes a little bit more liberty to play with themes, something he even plays with the chronological events uh, or the chronological narrative a little bit, piecing together a story to reveal themes that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who had all written earlier, might have left out or just left underemphasized. And here, in this opening scene, John is introducing one of those themes that he's going to keep on reintroducing as the narrative moves forward. You've got two people, both living with their eyes wide open, but only one of them can truly see. Hang on to that. Part one, seeing the image of God in creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. It reads like poetry. In fact, it is poetry. And poetry is a medium of literature designed to pour a bucket of ice-cold water out on the sleepy reader. It's designed to awaken us to see, to pay attention to what we've grown uh, overly familiar with in the drone of our ordinary lives. So what is David waking us up to in the opening stanzas of Psalm 19? 
He's saying that the very same story that we read on the pages of Scripture, we can equally read on the pages of creation, on the sunrise that begins a new day, or the melody the birds are singing with the return of spring, or the beautiful death that we behold in color every autumn. And this insight isn't new. The biblical authors, in fact, from Genesis all the way to Revelation are constantly relating the story of God on the page to the story of God in nature, in God's created world. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians. And in fact, Paul argues in Romans that God, the Creator, is so plainly revealed in nature, creation, that everyone has been afforded the opportunity to know God simply by living in God's world. Nate Foster, in his book, The Making of an Ordinary Saint, says, For the Christian, our study focuses primarily upon two great books, Scripture and the Book of Nature. And in my 36 years to date in God's world, I have been privileged to visit Colorado in the spring and behold Vermont in the fall. I've sat with my feet overlooking, uh, dangling on a cliff overlooking the Mediterranean, and I've walked the cobbled streets of an old Colombian city. I've seen the sun rise in Paris and the sun set in California. I've looked up at the stars from the open space of Wyoming and trudged through the snowy pines of Mount Hood. And I've spent many, many late nights and early mornings on rooftops in New York City. All of it, the breadth of all of God's creation, bursting with the image of the Creator behind it all. But of course, God's image that is revealed in the breadth of His creation is equally revealed in the depth of His creation. There's this one character in Richard Power's novel, The Overstory, an immigrant who comes to the U.S. chasing the American dream and then settles on a humble farm in Iowa. And he decides that every single month, on the first of every month, he's going to take a photograph of the oak that shades the front lawn of this new home that he's just purchased. And at the time of his funeral, he's got a flip book of decades of this one tree of the green of the summer that becomes the reds and the oranges of autumn and then the bare branches of winter and the promising buds of each new spring. This habit is then picked up by his son who carries on the same tradition, then his son after him carrying on the same tradition, a simple photo ritual passed down from generation to generation. The very creator that I have beheld in the breadth of creation traveling about God's world, they have beheld in the depth of creation by staying in one place looking at a single tree in God's world. Nature is not God, but it does point to God for those of us who have learned to see. The most famous biblical moment of God speaking through nature has to be in Exodus chapter 3, when God famously sparks the whole Exodus journey by speaking to Moses from within a burning bush. There's this really interesting turn of phrase, though, right at the beginning of that famous biblical moment. Let me read it to you. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. When God saw that Moses went over to look, he spoke. It reads like God was content just to burn all day in that bush with the message of liberation and let Moses walk right by without ever seeing. 
Like God spoke from within the bush because Moses saw the bush. Saw it in the sense that John seems to be using in the word. Saw it in the sense that Philip was inviting Nathaniel to see it. He was paying attention to it. Which makes me wonder, how many days might that bush have been burning prior to this one? Might God have been trying to get Moses' attention for a long time, and this was the day that he finally got it? It makes me wonder, what if Moses hadn't noticed? What would have become of him, and what would have become of Israel? There's no way for us to know the answers to questions like those. But I think asking questions like those is meant to provoke the more personal version of those questions from within us. How many burning bushes do I walk by every day? Elizabeth Barrett Browning says, Earth's crammed with heaven. And every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. Only he who sees takes off his shoes. There it is again. Come and see. Live in God's world in such a way that you have trained your vision to pay attention. The great American poet and outspoken follower of Jesus, Wendell Berry, once said, I take literally the statement in the Gospel of John that God loves the world. And he became one of the most renowned poets and novelists in American history, but he did not use his fame the way most in his field do to uh, get out of the rural Kentucky home that he had grown up in and instead settle down on a brownstone right along Central Park on Manhattan's Upper West Side or a painted house on a beautiful hillside in San Francisco. Instead, he stayed Put, rooting his life in that one common, ordinary place. Why would he do that? Well, because Wendell Berry once said, I take literally the statement in the Gospel of John that God loves the world. And later he added, no matter how much one may love the world as a whole, one can only live fully in it by living in some small part of it. The point that Barry is trying to make is that he wants to love the world like God does. He wants to join God in renewing and redeeming his whole creation. And love is counterfeit when it stays general. Right? The man who loves women in general is called a playboy or a womanizer. But the man who loves a woman, who loves her in her youth and loves her in her middle age and loves her in her elderly frailty, he is called faithful. And the aspiring missionary may find it easy to say, I love the Middle East from a cozy classroom at Western Seminary. But the true test of love comes when that love gets particular. When I love Kevon and Fatima and Amir. When I love the particular people who inhabit the square mile of the Middle East that I root my life in. When I love my neighbors. Uh, do I love the neighbors that I have in the Middle East or do I love the idea of the Middle East? Do I love particularly or do I love generally? General love is not love, it is sentiment. Love gets teeth, it's got staying power, it takes on life when it grows roots. Specificity, that is the true test of love. For love to carry any kind of currency, it's got to get particular. It is easy to love Portland in general, but do I love my neighbors? And do I love my city after my favorite restaurant closes and downtown starts feeling different? Do I love Portland idealistically or do I love it realistically? Do I love it generally or do I love it particularly? Do I love it selectively or do I love Portland faithfully? For God so loved the world, John says, that he gave his one and only son, 
And in giving his one and only son, God's love got particular for his world. God loved Nazareth and Galilee and Jericho. God loved Jerusalem and the Decapolis. God loved Peter, James, and John. And God loved uh, Judas, Nicodemus, and Caiaphas. God loved his world by loving a people and a place within his world. He loved his world broadly and he loved his world particularly. And we, his image bearers, are called to follow suit. Does anyone remember uh, August of 2017 when there was that uh, solar eclipse visible from down here on the earth? I've learned since moving to Oregon, you guys really like to tell people this, that there was some town in Oregon that was like the premier place on the globe to see it. But I was stuck in New York City, so I just saw it in some second-rate place. But I remember that day because I was getting off the F train at 23rd Street. I was right in the heart of Chelsea in a very bustling uh, section of the island of Manhattan. And and I remember that moment because North America's busiest, most hurried city stood still. And everyone stood on the sidewalks gazing up at the stars. And I can remember looking up at the stars in wonder so vividly because there was a phenomenal display in the heavens. But as I was looking up at it, I thought, you know, there's an even more phenomenal display down here on the sidewalk. Because according to the story I believe, the Creator's image that is so plainly visible that we first learn to see in nature, we're told, is even more deeply embedded in people. Scripture clearly states that the Creator is revealed in all of creation, but Scripture states just as clearly that the height of creation, the image of God at its brightest and most obvious, is not found in nature, but in people. That if you want to look at creation at its most glorious, you should not travel to the Swiss Alps or book a flight to Fiji. You should look at a person. He, she, you, down here on the sidewalk. That's the glory of God. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and you'll find it peppered all over the Old Testament. It's a one-word summary for the weight, greatness, and power of God. Moses famously asked God to see his glory, his kavod, but the request was denied. You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. John then opens his gospel with the most astounding of claims. The word became flesh and has made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Oh, the glory that would have killed Moses on the spot, John says. I've seen him, and so have you. Jesus, the one who came so close, so familiar, the one who is as common as Nazareth, he is the glory of God disguised in human flesh. And as if that wasn't enough, John closes his gospel with a, with a prayer of Jesus. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Jesus plainly says that the glory that was within him, he has put into his followers. And then Paul sums up the entire mission of the church. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious displays of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Bible, from cover to cover, makes the astounding statement that the aspect of creation that is most charged with the unimaginable, kavod, glory of God, is people. You, me, him, her. In the words of C.S. Lewis, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And that's a fair summary of the biblical story. No mere mortals, no ordinary. Every one of us, every last one of us, filled to the brim with the glory of God. In fairness, though, it did take Lewis a while to get there. 
I mean, the famous Oxford scholar also confessed that at first he couldn't stand the church. He loved Jesus, but the community bearing his name, he could take him or leave him. And look, if that's working for you, more power to you. But Lewis fancied himself more of an intellect and an introvert, more suited to uh, studies and offices and books than big gatherings and potluck meals. And so the church was something he selected his way out of. He himself wrote, I thought I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology. And when he eventually cried uncle and slid along into a pew in a common church, like all of Jesus' other followers, he discovered what he could not see alone in that room. Writing, I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education, and then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. What was he missing at home with his nose in those books, writing poetic prose about creator and creation? He couldn't see. He couldn't see the glory of God in the very place that God had put that glory most profoundly. To see... He had to sing a song that he didn't particularly like next to an older man in very unfashionable boots. To see that this is the brother that Jesus told me to wash the feet of. And to see I'm not fit to fall on my knees before his feet and scrub those boots. To see this brother so charged with the very glory of the creator in a way that no book could reveal in words. And the most beautiful landscape could not reveal in nature. The glory that we typically first learn to recognize in Scripture and then find it easiest to behold in in a beautiful aspect of nature, we all, it's all meant to guide us to the most astounding of discoveries that the most insufferable person, the most overbearing coworker at your office, and the most annoying member of your Bridgetown community holds within them more of God's glorious image than the perfect sunset painted over the Pacific. Lewis has known apprenticeship to Jesus as both Philip and Nathaniel. He has walked behind Jesus as the blind and the seeing. Keep hanging on to that. Part two, seeing the image of God in recreation. So right in the middle of John's gospel, Jesus heals a man born blind, an undeniable miracle that leads to controversy, culminating in a memorable, if not entirely confounding, mission statement. Jesus said... For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. What does Jesus mean by that? I mean, what's the story that makes sense of that statement? Well, the biblical story, you may remember, comes apart at the seams when Adam and Eve sin and for the first time in their lives hide. They, we, don't want to be seen by God and each other. A seam that God begins to repair by revealing himself to his fearful hiding people. And the first name that is given to this God by a person in the Hebrew Bible comes from Hagar, a discarded and forgotten single mother that God reveals himself to in the midst of her desperation. Genesis chapter 16. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. 
The one seen by God then becomes the one who truly sees. First truly sees God, then truly sees others. And it's not Abraham or Sarah, but Hagar, a slave who was tossed away as a mistake, who sees and is seen first. And in John's gospel, it's not the priest or the disciple, but the blind beggar, tossed away as a mistake, who sees and is seen first. Jesus is the God who sees, and all who recognize him then have their eyes opened. For the first time, they begin to truly see. And in the imagination of Jesus, when he goes around telling stories about what his kingdom will look like when it touches down on the earth, the heroes in those stories are not measured by their morality or virtue or status or position, but by their sight. Take, for example, the most famous parable that Jesus ever taught, the Good Samaritan. A priest sees him but doesn't see him. And then a Levite sees him but doesn't see him. And then a Samaritan, tossed away as a mistake, sees the robbed and helpless roadside man through the eyes of the God who sees and acts accordingly. All of them with their eyes wide open, but only one of them can truly see. There it is again. Hang on to that. The story holds if we turn from the biblical story and look at the same themes through the world of psychology which uniformly agrees on at least these three things. That first, recognition is the first human quest. The psychologist Kurt Thompson says, every baby is born into the world looking for someone looking for her. Infants reveal our humanity to us at its most primal, and infants are traumatized when they feel unseen. Psychologists have performed all sorts of um, uh, the still face experiments where they instruct mothers to sit next to their infant child but not respond to them through facial expression. And that infant will always follow the same pattern. At first they'll begin to cry, then they will begin to work harder and throw a fit to try to get their mother's attention, and it culminates, if if it lasts long enough, in a full-blown existential identity crisis. The psychological conclusion is that a child who feels unseen for a prolonged period of time, suffers significant emotional damage. And even if that infant is unable to remember and articulate that event of being unseen as an adult, that damage continues to influence their person and sense of self even then. In other words, as we grow up, we become more adept at hiding. But we do not outgrow the need to be seen and the trauma of being unseen. Everyone you have ever met has stepped into your presence asking three unspoken questions. Do you see me? Do you value me? Do you love me? And we answer those questions for one another with our gaze before we answer them with our words. George Bernard Shaw says, The worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent toward them. In other words, the cruelest wound that I inflict on another is not to see them, It is to look not to them, but through them, not at them, but past them, to with my gaze define them as unimportant or invisible. Secondly, true sight starts with an admission of blindness. Generally speaking, we're very bad at recognition. We are bad at truly seeing one another. And that is not my distant projection onto you, that is the psychological consensus. William Ix is the de facto lead researcher on the psychological value of empathy. He has put a ton of scholarship into how accurate people are at truly seeing one another and perceiving one another. And he finds that strangers who are in their first conversation with one another read one another accurately approximately 20% of the time. 
that close friends and family members grow to know one another more deeply and therefore do better, they read each other correctly up to 35% of the time. Fascinatingly, married couples statistically get worse at this over the course of their marriage, not better. And ultimately, Ix developed a scale of empathic uh, accuracy, discovering that the very best human beings on the face of the planet at seeing one another deeply and compassionately are able to read another correctly up to 55% of the time. So about half the time. And that's the Pele of empathy. Probably not me and you. The skill that we do develop, which benefits and advances us in our culture, is not empathy, but it is empathy's opposite categorization. We keep mental file folders in our minds for certain types of people, and when we meet someone, we file them away in the correct manila folder in the back of our imagination. We make snap judgments about each other because that is safer, easier, and more efficient. Because when I can box you in, I can continue to move through the world quickly. Categorizing people affords me the privilege of quickly choosing what I have to gain from you and what I have to lose to you, and therefore how and if to invest my time in you. And the trouble with that is twofold. First, we're almost always wrong about how we categorize one another, as we've just discovered. And secondly, more troubling, we form our categories based on the false self, not the true self. When I mentally categorize you, I make you less. I define you in my mental filing cabinet by the lies that you have believed that have imprisoned you, not the truth spoken into you first that sets you free. We tend to get our categories from the accuser, not the redeemer, and that, my friends, is a significant problem. And then third, and finally, empathy is both a skill and a talent. In his latest book, How to Know a Person, author and columnist David Brooks pieces all this research on empathy together to, to discover that empathy is a talent. That just like shooting a basketball or doing a back handspring, some people are just born with more capacity to do it than others. They are naturally more gifted and talented at seeing another deeply and truly. But, Brooks goes on to say, empathy is also a skill, meaning that you and I can grow in empathy. That just like shooting a basketball or doing a back handspring, everyone can practice and grow in seeing one another truly and deeply. I'm never going to shoot a basketball like Steph Curry. But if I practice, I can get better than I am right now at shooting a basketball. Empathy works the same way. And empathy is the psychological word for what Jesus labels sight, the ability to see another as an image bearer of God and then respond to them accordingly. For judgment I've come into the world, Jesus says, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And over the course of our lives, we tend to magnify or minimize one another. We see the true self drawing the true self out of hiding, or we see the false self coaxing one another to just layer on the fig leaves. And one of the more humbling aspects of my life currently is the honest realization that in spite of how I would like to think of myself and who I would like to become, I am not, in a core description of my personality, an empathetic person. I've recently been quite convicted by the truth that I am pretty quick to speak and pretty slow to listen, that I occasionally make others less despite my sincere desire to make them more, and that I struggle to see others the way that Jesus sees them. And a tension that I live within as a Bible teacher is that sometimes I get to teach the scripture out of my life, inviting you a few paces into a place that I've been, but other times I'm teaching you the scripture in spite of my life. 
saying, if I'm reading the map correctly, this is where we're trying to go, but let's see if we can get there together. And this is one of those teachings. So I'm going to invite you into a practice that I'm aiming my life at, but certainly not one I've mastered, not even close. When it comes to today's teaching, I am more Nathaniel than Philip. I am the blind man by the roadside, crying out, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the good news is that he will. And just in case I'm not the only one who's there. Part three, opening the eyes of the blind. What are the practices for growing in the skill of empathy? How can I partner with God in opening my blind eyes to see others as he sees them? Let me give you three core practices. Curiosity, pace, and meditation. We'll take those one at a time. So first, curiosity. How many of you have ever worked in the food service industry by a show of hands? Exactly, 80% of the human race, right? And in spite of that fact, we still eat at restaurants. It's stunning. Zadie Smith's novel, White Teeth, tells the fictional story of Samad Iqbal, who works as a restaurant server in London. That's not what he ultimately wants to do with his life. It's not where he pictured himself being at this stage in his life. It's not where he hopes to be from five years from now, but it is where he is today. And Samad hates the perception that comes with his vocation. He's a complex person with a complex past. There's so much more to him than just the guy refilling your water glass, but he feels that's all you ever see. He works a job with constant human interaction, but that interaction never humanizes him. It reduces him to, from a person down to a role, a necessary background character in someone else's nice evening. And so Samad, at one point in this book, he daydreams about waiting tables with a sign hanging around his neck. A sign that reads, I'm not a waiter. I've been a student, a scientist, a soldier. My wife is called Asana. We live in East London, but we would like to move north. I'm a Muslim, but Allah has forsaken me, or I have forsaken Allah. I'm not sure. I have a friend, Archie, and others. I'm 49, but women still turn in the street. Sometimes. <laughs> in this short paragraph, the deep longings of his heart are laid bare. The longing to live a life of significance. I'm more than just my current position. The longing to sacrifice for something that matters. I've got friends and family. The longing to understand his meta place in the whole story of the world, his struggles with God, and his perception of the divine. His longing to find a home at this stage in his life, searching for roots in the city. Uh, a longing to be noticed, even if it's just by the glance of a woman passing on the street. The subtext of every line is, I want to be seen. I'm more than just what you see in the appearance of this uniform and apron. I have a past and a future, and I want to be seen for all of it, but I don't know how. And Zadie Smith is able to write empathetically because she lives a life of curiosity. In an interview, she explained that when she was a little girl, she constantly imagined what it would be like to live in the homes of her friends. I rarely entered a friend's home without wondering what it would be like to never leave. That is, what it would be like to be Polish or Ghanaian or Irish or Bengali, to be richer or poorer, to say these prayers or hold those politics. I was an equal opportunity voyeur. I wanted to know what it was like to be everybody. Above all, I wondered what it would be like to believe the sorts of things I didn't believe. And when I read that interview, I immediately thought of my wife, Kirsten, because she's just like that. She is endlessly and effortlessly curious. She is never judging, but always wondering about others, 
about what makes them who they are and about what they value most deeply. What a phenomenal way to cultivate empathy, to simply choose to be non-judgmentally curious. How is Jesus able to see the blind beggar Bartimaeus and instead of dismissing him as some crazy vagabond in the big city, to see him deeply in what he was crying out for? Or how was Jesus able to see Zacchaeus as a sincere man who was right on the cusp of repentance and not another just sleazy uh, tax collector who had lied his way into wealth? Or how was Jesus able to see the rich young ruler and love him rather than dismissing him as a materialist? It seems to me that curiosity, non-judgmental curiosity, has to be a key ingredient in one of the more overlooked aspects of Christ-like love for one another. Because curiosity is the opposite of categorization. Categorization keeps my imagination tidy by making you less. Curiosity allows you to become more and it welcomes your whole self into my imagination hospitably. David Brooks concluding says, if I approach you in this respectful way, I'll know that you are not a puzzle that can be solved, but a mystery that can never be gotten to the bottom of. Second practice, pace. For the last few years, I've had the great joy of being mentored by Pete Gregg, who's the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement. He's come around here a few times. He's a spiritual father in my life, one of the men that I know that I hope to become more like as I get older. And as it tends to happen with mentorship, all of the the best gifts he's given me have happened not in the official mentorship context, but just along the way as I've seen him living his life. And one moment that stands out to me in particular is a couple years ago when I was in England to preach at this festival called Wildfires. And Gavin, another of our pastors, was traveling with me, and uh, we stayed at Pete and Sammy's house together for a couple of nights before all the festivities began to get a little bit of rest. And on a Saturday morning... Pete enlisted Gavin to help him stack some firewood on the side of the house. And I walked out of the house as they were stacking firewood, and then Pete threw another log onto the pile and then popped up and said, Gavin, I think I've just had a prophetic word for you. We should pray later. And then just continued stacking the firewood. I was intrigued. After they had completed the task, we all three sat down together, and Pete shared a word over Gavin, a a picture that had popped into his mind that resonated deeply and became quite defining for the next year of Gavin's life. And I've never forgotten that interaction because it occurred to me that there was no separation between who Pete was stacking firewood on a Saturday and who he was preaching the following Sunday. He was no more or less attentive to God in one environment than another. Acts 17 says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 10 again, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Meaning that God is not just able to bring his kingdom when we gather in a holy, sacred building on a Sunday. He's able to bring his kingdom in the ordinary environments of our everyday world. But in order to join what God is doing, I must be both intentional and interruptible. Right, to join God's loving pursuit in the life of a brother or sister on a Sunday requires me to show up to an environment like this one intentionally, ready to attune myself to God's voice on behalf of my brothers and sisters, to see through God's eyes my brothers and sisters. But to join God's loving pursuit of another in the everyday Saturday stacking wood environments requires that I live my life interruptibly. That I'm unwilling to compartmentalize God to certain environments and certain experiences, but I'm aware of Him and awake to Him at every moment. And there's something that I've noticed along the way, that hurry makes me uninterruptible. 
To be interruptible, I have to be moving at a slow enough pace to notice. When I'm in a hurry, I'm living my day through an efficiency mindset, and I've got tunnel vision. When I'm in a hurry, interruptions are not welcome invitations from God. They are obstacles to my agenda. They are distractions to be eliminated. They're not invitations to be explored. And there's ways of showing up in this world that widen my eyes to see, and there's ways of showing up in this world that cloud and blur my vision. And the environment that I've noticed this most in my life is at school drop-off and pick-up. Does anyone remember that when kids used to attend school? (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm for you teachers. It just felt like we needed to laugh together, just let the tension out. I shouldn't have commented on this issue publicly. Let's strike this from the podcast, and I hope you see me through the eyes of Jesus. When I drop my kids off at school, I'm almost always in a rush. I've got three little boys, um, and so that means that a lot of my life outside of work consists of just playing chauffeur. I'm dropping them off, picking them up, taking them one place. I'm almost always in a rush because I don't have a lot of time, and so I always feel like I've got to get from here to there to get this or that done as quickly as possible. But Kirsten, when I'm with her, it's like she's the principal of the school. She knows all the parents and teachers by their first names, and she's catching up with people, and she's asking about their doctor's appointment this week or their kid's soccer team or how she can help because she knows their spouse is out of town this week. And that's not because she doesn't have as much going on as me. She's got plenty going on. We have a one-year-old. And if that dude's nap schedule gets thrown off, it's like detonating a bomb inside of our home. She very much has a lot going on. But she's not showing up to the world hurried because she is not living among others by efficiency mindset. She's living among others by a relational mindset. She is entering deeply into the lives of our neighbors, and I'm a ship passing in the night. If you were to ask me which one of the two of you is likely to show up really intentionally on a Sunday ready to preach a sermon, it'd be me by a long shot. But if you were to ask me which one of the two of you is more likely to have a prophetic word for a friend while stacking wood on a Saturday, it'd be her by just as big of a long shot. Ruth Haley Barton says, We're blind to the bush that is burning in our own backyard and the wisdom that is contained in it. We long for a word from the Lord, but somehow we've been suckered into believing that the pace we keep is what leadership requires. We slide inexorably into a way of life that offers little or no opportunity for paying attention and then wonder why we're not hearing from God when we need God most. Sorry. It's just that I'm learning to slow down and to live at the speed of relationship and not the speed of efficiency. And that's because I want to be the kind of person that moves slowly enough in the world to... See others as they truly are, to know them deeply.
the kind of person that draws out the true self in others, and the kind of person who's just as likely to have a prophetic word on Saturday stacking wood as on Sunday leading worship. I want to become more like Pete. I want to become more like Kirsten. I want to become more like Jesus. And for me, that requires learning to be myself, moving at a slower pace, slow enough to recognize the burning bushes in my backyard and slip off my shoes. And maybe I'm not the only one. Gosh, I should have put this one last. <laughs> I have another thing to say <laughs> that is less personal but equally important. I'm so proud of who you are, Kay. I didn't know it would be hard to say this with you in the room. I'm so proud of who you are. I see so much of Jesus in you. I honor who you are. All right. All right, last practice, meditation. And I don't mean meditation in like the Zen sense. I'm talking about sight. I'm talking about what you pay attention to as you make your way through the world. Right, garbage in, garbage out. We've all heard that a bunch of times before, and that is true. Interestingly, that has fallen out of fashion. Uh, it's fallen out of fashion to be discerning these days about the content that you let into your life when you have the willing choice, mostly about the media that we consume and the company that we keep, as if it's some embarrassing blemish on a prehistoric version in church history when most of us were fundamentalists that we need to scrub ourselves clean of, when the truth is being discerning about what you let into your imagination is cutting-edge psychology and that you and I have a great personal responsibility in the thought patterns of our minds and the way that we see the world. That if you fill your mind with violence, you will become more violent. If you fill your mind with pornography, you will become more lustful and objectifying. Fill your mind with profanity and your mouth won't be far behind. Fill your mind with cynicism and you will find your eyes narrowing and skepticism ticking up. Fill your mind with judgment and categorization is going to become your default setting. In the poetic words of Mary Oliver, attention is the beginning of devotion. So what are you paying attention to? Like when you have the freedom to direct your attention and your imagination wherever you choose to, where are you choosing to point it, and what is it doing to you? The only issue with this garbage in, garbage out phrase is that it stops at the negative. It's true, but it's not all the way true, because Scripture says that this principle, the same principle can be applied positively, wonder in, wonder out. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, says Philippians 4. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Watching reality television teaches you to minimize people, to form opinions and categorize them as villain or hero, substantive or shallow, to make them less, not more. Most reality television is an exercise in exploiting people for their insecurities, making light of their embarrassment, and then forming judgmental opinions on who should get voted off the island, or who should make it to the next round, or who deserves the final rose. It is an exercise in judgment and categorization, a practice in dehumanizing and diminishing. On the other side of the coin, since moving to the Pacific Northwest, I've fallen in love with camping and backpacking, something that was not a part of my consciousness in my life in New York City. 
And I've noticed that sitting next to a campfire while my boys drift off to sleep in a tent or gazing up at stars on a clear night and feeling my own smallness and frailty, uh, gazing at the peaceful little faces that are in that tent when I unzip the flap to climb in and go to sleep, it's all an exercise in wonder. It is practice at slowing and thinking and seeing Camping is something I genuinely enjoy that also teaches me to see, to see God in nature and to see the image of God in the faces of my children. And when I do, I've noticed that the prayers that tumble out of me start to sound like the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. And look, it's not enough to just me to have a moment every once in a while while I'm away in the woods. I've got to learn to drag that with me back to the school pick up and drop off. But attention is the beginning of devotion. So where are you directing your free attention? And what is it doing to you? Reading memoir and fiction uh, makes my soul expand in a way that television just doesn't. And showing up at night strike occasionally and uh, sharing a meal with a cold and hungry body is never what I'm dreaming of as the weekend is drawing near, and yet it fills my soul in a way that no Michelin star dinner can. And praying the Psalms until the words are hidden away in my heart is a willing choice when the notifications on my phone are much lower hanging fruit, but one widens my eyes in wonder and the other narrows and blurs my vision. But that's just me. Like what cultivates depth of sight in you? Pay attention to such things. To experience the depth of community, uh, we have a personal responsibility, friends. Cultivate wonder. Let Jesus open your eyes in all the environments and ways that you have grown blind. This will not happen accidentally. But by partnering with the Holy Spirit through prayer and practice, we can become people who see. We can become people of empathy. Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? A wonderless question based on overfamiliarity. Come and see. A wonderstruck invitation. Why don't we stand and respond together? As everyone comes, I just want to begin ministry by reading this prayer over you. It's from Rabbi Chaim Stern. Let us become still. Days pass and the years vanish and we walk sightless among miracles. God, fill our eyes with seeing and our minds with knowing. Let there be moments when your presence like lightning illumines the darkness in which we walk. Help us to see wherever we gaze that bush that burns unconsumed. And we, clay touched by God, will reach out for holiness and exclaim in wonder, how filled with awe is this place? And we did not know it.